Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to another Sibline podcast. I'm Eloise Scott, the lead analyst for the Middle East and Africa. And with me, we have our sub-Saharan Africa experts. We've got senior analyst Benedict Manzin and associate analyst Edie Lipton. Today, we'll be discussing some quite notable and concerning developments in the Horn of Africa. Earlier this week, Ethiopian authorities declared a nationwide state of emergency after what appeared to be quite a major escalation in the year-long conflict between government and forces from Tigray. Meanwhile, in Sudan, last month's military coup seems to have inspired further unrest and certainly uncertainty uh, surrounding political transition. So we'll start with Sudan. Edie, it seemed like Sudan was on a path, albeit a very unsteady one, uh, to some kind of transition. So what exactly has happened recently in the last few weeks and why? So on the 25th of October, Abdel Fattah al-Burham, a military officer and chairman of the Sovereign Council, announced the state of emergency and the dissolution of the Transitional Sovereign Council and government. And military forces um, arrested senior civilian leaders of the transitional government, including Prime Minister Abdallah Handok. In response, the office of Sudan's Prime Minister called on protesters to take to the streets and anti-military protests have taken place, which were met by excessive use of force by by, um, security forces, including use of gunfire and tear gas, and hundreds of people have been seriously injured as a result. But the continuation of protests have driven the military to open negotiations now in an attempt to form a new government with Hamdok as Prime Minister. But this is being opposed by civilian groups, including members of the Forces Freedom and Change and the Sudanese Professionals Association, who claim that this represents an attempt to maintain um, military dominance. But basically, this is kind of the build-up of tensions that have been um, arising since the, the coup, the attempted coup on the 21st of September, um, where civilian elements accused the military of attempting to disrupt reform and relations between civilian and military components of the government, um, which have really deteriorated from there, triggering a suspension of meetings in the Sovereign Council. I think also, as, as well as being connected to these kind of initial or these more recent flashpoints and catalysts. It's also a sort of a result of sort of inherent contradictions within the transitional government. Um, Essentially, you've got parties that are committed to reforming the administration of al-Bashir, but the military was so closely connected to that government, so closely connected to that administration. And so there were concerns that when um, the sovereign council's leadership was due to pass to the civilians, as per the transitional agreement reached back in 2019, which was due to happen in a few days' time on the 19th of, uh, or 17th of November, that as soon as they weren't in a position to control that kind of highest governing body, they would lose their ability to put brakes on the reform process, lose their ability to ensure their own security, lose their ability to protect themselves from likely um, criminal charges for human rights abuses, war crimes, and also would, would, would lose control of their financial assets that they built up during um, al-Bashir's tenure. So do you think then, Ben, that, that essentially this kind of transition period was kind of doomed from the start, given this military dominance? And where, where do you think the coup can go from here, really? I mean, I think uh, from, I mean, from the start of, the, of this transition, we've been saying that it looks like the military was stalling for time with this with this agreement 
that they were hoping that a moment would appear where they might be able to remove the civilian leadership and kind of reinsert themselves. But for the last year and a half, you know, the civilian transition has done a number of things that they would have been unable to do. Uh, without the civilian leadership, they wouldn't have been able to reintegrate with the international community. They wouldn't have been able to access that support that the US was offering, the substantial financial support, um, the, the substantial um, debt relief that is made available to them through the IMF and the World Bank. This would all have been impossible without civilian, without civilian partnership. And so it was possible that that consideration would have convinced them that maybe there was some way to kind of gracefully exit um, from power. And maybe some accommodation could be, could be made whereby they could surrender without being too threatened. But it, it, lo it looks like, you know, that they weren't willing to make that concession, that they didn't believe that they would be tried in the end. And so I think um, in this instance, they, they massively miscalculated. They, they looked at an economic condition over the last few years where the civilian government has implemented IMF recommendations, which have severely damaged uh, many people, in, many members of the population, you know, um, cuts to um, fuel subsidies and, and, and subsidies for basic goods, really damaging. And so I, th I think they thought that maybe their popular, the civilian's popular support had been sufficiently damaged that if they did remove them, they wouldn't face the same level of domestic backlash as they faced in 2019 after they removed al-Bashir. They, they miscalculated, they were wrong, um, as you can see from the mass demonstrations that are now ongoing in Khartoum with further uh, you know, major events planned for the 6th of November. So where do you see international um, powers and international response in this regard? You mentioned that obviously um, the civilian factions were key to this. So, so what has been the international response? I mean, the US immediately demanded the release of Prime Minister Hamdok and a return to the transition agreement. Um, and they've withdrawn their financial support from the country, um, which I think is $700 million. And similarly, the IMF and the World Bank have suspended their promised amount, um, which came to a total of about $50 billion as well. So compounded with the domestic response, the loss of this funding will contribute to inflation and shortages of basic goods. Um, and that will threaten the military's leadership and their support. I think Egypt in particular as well has previously been a supporter of the military faction um, within Sudan because they see it as a key ally against Ethiopia and the dispute with the um, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, but it didn't resist the African Union's motion to suspend Sudan um, and it's not offered support to the coup. So, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's a great point. You know, in terms of the international response, it's as much as it's about the cr criticism that the coup has immediately received it's also about the lack of support that they have got you know support that they might have expected from people who have been backers of the military faction within Sudan um, powers like Saudi Arabia uh, the UAE and and of course Egypt who are, have all been quite favorable of maintaining a sort of status quo in Sudan which is connected to maintaining the position of these military figures who were prominent during the um, Bashir period as well so what we've seen from them is actually them, you know, they, they've looked at the US response and, you know, figured that maybe this, this isn't a place to stick their neck out. 
And so they back the US position. They've said, OK, you know, we need the coup to go. The transitional government needs to be resumed. And um, and I think actually considerations around, for Egypt in particular around things like the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, that absolutely um, factored into their um, reluctance to come out and back the military. Because while the military have been a supporter on this, I think they've looked at the military's position and decided that it's actually untenable. And therefore, if they were to back it now, there's a chance that a future Sudanese government will be formed and will remember that and therefore will actually not be supportive of Cairo's position on the GERD going forward. Those are some really interesting pointers. Um, thank you to both of you. I think just one final question on Sudan. Obviously, it does seem like quite a, a fraught situation at the moment. Um, obviously, looking at both sort of military and civilian factions, it sounds like a workable solution is is possible but it sounds like it's it, it could be um potentially not the most sustainable so what potentially happens if we're not able to find a kind of working solution between these factions i mean the key, the key challenge will be attempting to reconcile the demands of the military which are to re retain some influence within government and um civilian expectations about the progress of reform now there was a, some progress even before this coup towards some agreement which would have reduced tensions allowing um burhan to remain as head of sovereign council for a little bit longer reshuffling cabinet basically accepting some you know accepting some positions that the military might find te um, tenable but this coup will have completely shaken civilian confidence in the military as, as a reliable partner, particularly of Burhan, who has been at the, at the, at the forefront of the coup. It, it, this will have made his, his image essentially toxic um, to many civilian factions. And so it, it's likely that they will, if they are willing to go back and work with the military again, then it, it'll need to be under someone else. And Burhan might reject that. But I think that he can only rely on support from other members of the military for so long. I mean, this, this is a repeated theme, uh, not just in Sudan, but also in, in other countries that have undergone, undergone coups. The military might be willing to back a strong man for a certain amount of time. Uh, they, they did it in Guinea. They did it with al-Bashir before, before 2019. Uh, but eventually, doing that, putting down protesters repeatedly, use, use of lethal force, increases the likelihood that you're going to end up on the wrong side of a sanctions list, that you're going to end up um, targeted by the International Criminal Court. And eventually, many figures in the military decide that actually you're not worth all this increased, ten all this increased attention and all this increased um, pressure. And we'll decide that actually we can find another frontman who will work just as well and won't have the same toxicity around them in particular. And you can see that kind of starting to happen in Sudan already. You have uh, Hamdam Dagalo, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, Burhan's deputy on the Sovereign Council, has been very quiet since this coup began. It looks like he's attempting to distance himself from it, even though he benefits from it. Absolutely, he benefits from it. Because if it goes badly, he might be in a position to be seen as a more palatable alternative, someone that the, someone that the civilians could work with, in which case, as these considerations you know, start to be made, you I think you'll see fragmenting within the armed forces in Sudan. You know, and, he, and that can go one of two ways. That could be, you know, Burhan is kind of quietly removed one day and it all happens quite smoothly. Or we could see conflicts uh, between different units of the armed forces 
um, in Khartoum and around and around Sudan, which obviously far more disruptive, far greater threats to assets and stuff. Thank you for those insights. Um, fascinating stuff, and I imagine it will be keeping us all busy for the <laughs> for the coming weeks and probably beyond. I think we should probably briefly turn to Ethiopia now. Obviously, there have been some quite punchy developments there too. So again, maybe turning to you, Edie, what exactly has happened? We've seen that there has been an escalation. So what's been happening in the last couple of weeks in Ethiopia that has led to that has essentially led to this escalation? So the Ethiopian central government declared a nationwide state of emergency and they urged people in Addis Ababa to defend their neighbourhoods with their registered weapons on Tuesday after the TPLF announced that they were considering marching on the city. And the announcement from the TPLF follows their seizure of a number of towns in the Amhara region and their recent announcement that they had joined forces with the Ormo Liberation Army to fight the central government. So the conflict has really escalated since October when the TPLF and the Ethiopian government claimed their positions were attacked and that catalyzed the revival of intense conflict in the Hamharas region, um, north and south Wello zones after Alulin fighting. Um, so the Ethiopian government launched a new coordinated offensive on all fronts of the TPLF and they launched a series of airstrikes that have caused um, a number of injuries and deaths and also a huge amount of damage to critical infrastructure. But over the, car, the past couple of days, the TPLF have seized towns um, of Desi, Kumbulcha and Burka in the Amhara region, and they've committed um, large-scale human rights abuses in those towns. And the Omoro um, Liberation Army as well claimed to have captured the town of Kamais, which is 53 kilometres south of Kumbulcha. Um, so that's before announcing that they were considering marching on the city. Um, and the TPLF and the Oromo Liberation Army have announced that they have now joined forces. So what do we think, Ben? Do we think that a, a TPLF advance on Addis Ababa is, is likely, essentially? Yeah, that's, a, that's a hard one. On one. On one hand, there is a major question as to whether or not it's, it's feasibly, it's, it's actually possible for them to advance on Addis Ababa. Obviously, the government's statement is, is concerning because usually whenever the Ethiopian government is engaged in you know, informing the population about the state of the conflict, they're very favourable about their own position. So to say uh, that there is a risk that they might advance on Addis Ababa. That's a notable shift in that in that kind of style of rhetoric, um, an admission that things might be going very poorly. Equally, it could be an attempt to um, further rally the population against the TPLF, try and uh, drum up the national threat that the TPLF um, represent in order to bolster support. I mean, this comes you know only days after. Um, Abiy Ahmed again called on the population to um, join the armed forces. So this, this it's possible that it could be part of, of that. But given that these towns did fall after the government began a major offensive against uh, against TPLF positions, it seems possible that that we're looking at a situation where that offensive has gone very poorly. Uh, the armed forces might be in a, in a condition of disarray, and therefore this this could present an opportunity for the TPLF to advance towards Addis. But if if they did, one, there's a risk that they will become overstretched. They still have a hostile Eritrea to their north, and if they don't manage their troops well, it's possible that they could um, see an incursion into Tigray on, on their back lines by Eritrea. Um, and also, they are very unpopular with much of the Ethiopian population because of you know the legacy of the 
nearly two decades in power that they had before Abiy Ahmed administration. It's very unlikely that they will find many allies as they advance south and could come up against you know, quite considerable resistance. And, and if they do capture Alice Ababa, they then need to form some form of some kind of government, which presents another major challenge given major the level of unpopularity around much of the country. And what kind of impact will this have for sort of Ethiopia's wider national stability? Obviously, you talk about these different regions that are, are quite clearly quite disparate in many ways. So if the TPLF was to advance and they did capture Addis Ababa, or certainly they, they get close to, what kind of impact is this likely to have on Ethiopia's national stability? I, mean, I think the, the main concern is that if, if, the, if the TPLF do not work hard enough or are unsuccessful at forming a government of made up of various ethnic members you know, from around the country, then um, any government that the, the Tigrayans might announce now, Baba might just be rejected around the country and around uh, and among the various kind of semi-autonomous states that make up Ethiopia. And if that, and if that happens, then there is a, quite a significant risk that you, what you'll see is those semi-autonomous states essentially become sort of little you know, mini, mini states in their own right and start to attempt to exert their own, you know, um, their own kind of uh, land disputes and their own, their own borders, which kind of overlap in many cases with each other, at which point you see kind of conflicts start to break up and break out around Ethiopia. So, you know, there's a, there's a considerable risk that, you know, if a transition to a Tigrayan ruled government is badly handled, then, yeah, you, you look at a widespread instability. Um, and, and the challenge to the Tigrayans to avoid that is that, you know, if, even if they did want to start working with um, opposition parties from around the country, most of these opposition parties historically formed in opposition to them, in opposition to the TPLF while they ruled the Ethiopian government. So turning these always these various organizations into partners in a new Ethiopia, I think represents quite a considerable challenge. And if we're, and if we're looking at that sort of scenario, then I think you're looking at a, at a, at a new migrant crisis in Ethiopia, conflicts um, you know, um, displacing many thousands of people. And then this plays into the situation in Sudan because Sudan historically has been able to assist the EU by disrupting the movement of people across its borders. If Sudan is not cooperating with the EU in the US because relations have been disrupted by its current coup, well, then it's not in a position to do that. And so you, you will see, you may see an influx of people across Sudan northwards towards the Mediterranean, you know, exacerbating the movement of our people. That's really interesting. And it's interesting that you bring Sudan back into the equation. I'm obviously aware that you also mentioned earlier the um, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, the, the GERD. So given that, I mean, it sounds like there are enough factors internally to create enough instability within Ethiopia. Um, but sort of looking a little bit further afield, obviously the GERD is, is impacting Egypt, Sudan as well. Can we see um, these kind of actors maybe getting involved? Would, would there be any potential um, support from, from Egypt, for instance, in Ethiopia? I think the Egyptian government might feel like it could gain from Ethiopia's instability, but there isn't really any good outcomes for Egypt. If they try and back the TPLF, um, they win. First, the TPLF were key actors behind the launch of the GERD, um, and they were just invested in as much of the rest of the um, Ethiopian government. So it's not really clear whether they would be any more amenable to Egyptian demands. They weren't um, when they were in government for the last two decades or so. 
And if the TPLF loses, uh, they have further undermined the likelihood that Ethiopia might be persuaded to accept any of their demands. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think I just want to absolutely mirror those points. It just seems like a situation which, yes, there is a kind of environment where Egypt might believe it can utilise the instability to improve its position, but it's just the situation is just too hot for them to really get involved in. And it's not, there isn't enough certainty as to which party is going to come out victorious at the end of all this um, for them to really feel that they, they could make effective calculations as to you know what, what, what they would offer the TPLF in exchange for support on, you know, on the GERD. And if the TPLF you know, could actually be in a position to win and therefore you know, return any favour. Brilliant. That's fantastic insight, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Um, clearly some concerning developments and, and things to watch for potential flashpoints in the coming weeks and beyond. So thank you very much. I will hand over to um, Valeria, who's with us, um, our analyst for the Middle East and North Africa, to give us a rundown on what we can look forward to in the next couple of weeks. Um, so this coming week, uh, will, much of the attention will continue to be centred on the ongoing uh, COP26 in Glasgow, which will last until the 12th of November. In particular, something to look out for will be the Global Day of Action for Climate Justice on November 6th, which is set to be the centrepiece of activist campaigning during the, the summit. Uh, mass environmentalist protests are expected in major cities across Europe, and in particular in the UK, with Glasgow expecting uh, over 150,000 people to attend the march. Uh, there will be, of course, a heightened risk of uh, energy and financial companies being targeted by activists throughout this event. So something to definitely keep an eye on. In South America, Nicaragua will hold its uh, presidential elections on the 7th of November, which have uh, drawn uh, close international attention in particular for due to human rights concerns uh, in the authoritarian country. The U.S. Uh, House of Representatives has already approved a bill to increase increase diplomatic and economic pressure against uh, President Daniel Ortega's regime, um, which will threaten agribusiness and clothing trade under the current uh, free trade agreement. Between the 10th and the 11th of November, uh, India will hold a conference on Afghanistan, uh, which will include the participation of countries like Russia, uh, the US and Pakistan, uh, though that uh, still has to be confirmed, uh, and it will discuss the question over uh, officially recognizing the Taliban regime, which has been at the center point of uh, uh, international discussions uh, more globally. Going back uh, to the African continent, Kinshasa will see protests on the 6th of November. Uh, religious leaders have called demonstrators to gather near the parliament, and protests are likely to prompt increased security deployments in the city, which will affect the movement of people and goods. Uh, and uh, in particular, uh, government buildings will represent flashpoints. Um, there is a potential for excessive use of force, uh, which elevates the risk of uh, staff safety um, in the city. Next week, the Paris Climate Agreement will enter into effect in Turkey, whose parliament, which parliament has uh, ratified uh, earlier uh, in, in October. Uh, finally, further down the line uh, on November 29th, the Iranian nuclear diplomatic talks are expected to resume and uh, the announcement of the resumption and of actually having a day to come uh, amid intensified Western and in particular US pressure on Iran. So uh, 
the Middle East desk in particular will keep a close eye on any developments. Thank you very much for that, Valeria. And if this podcast has generated any questions or you want to get in touch, please do reach out. We're on LinkedIn. And also you can contact us on info at Many thanks for listening. 